Amen. All right, well, we're there in Job chapter number 37, and we've been going through a series on Sunday mornings called Reasoning, and it's been a unique series in the sense that we have spent the last three weeks going through different subjects and looking at some things, some major themes in the Bible that require faith, and we've been looking at the fact that our faith is reasonable, meaning our faith stands up to reason. It is a logical faith. We started three weeks ago. Of course, it was Easter, and we started with a sermon called Reasoning the Resurrection, and we looked at some logical reasons to believe in the resurrection or why it makes sense that the resurrection was an actual historical event that actually took place. Last week, we talked about reasoning the Bible, and we looked at some reasons why it makes sense that the Bible is, in fact, God's Word. It's not just a book written by man. In fact, we looked at last week that not only was it not written by man, it could not have been written uh, by man. And if you're here this morning, and maybe it's your first time uh, here, and you miss those sermons, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those. You can catch those on our YouTube channel or on our website, uh, the MP3 files or the videos. And uh, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those because I think it would help... uh, your, your faith. It would help you understand what we believe as Christians. This morning, we are actually finishing up this series. Next week is going to be Mother's Day, and then after that, we're going to start a brand new uh, three-part series, and we'll talk about that next week. But this morning, we are talking about reasoning the creation. We are talking about why we, as Bible-believing Christians, reject things like the theory of evolution and believe that God is the creator as Genesis chapter 1 Teaches Now, you're there in Job 37, and I'd like you to notice a couple of things uh, there in Job 37. Let me just say this, actually, before we, we go there. The purpose of this series and the purpose of this morning is not to attempt to substitute faith. The Bible says, and I've quoted this for you every week in this series, but the Bible says this, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I am not attempting to substitute faith for you. If you are looking for a a reason to come to God without faith, you will never come to God because you cannot come to God without faith. You must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. What we are doing in this series is we are attempting to give you logical reasons to believe in what the Bible says or for you to see that our faith is not of a faith in a cunningly devised fable, but it is a logical faith that stands up to reasoning. Now, if you're there in Job 37, look at verse 14. Notice what the Bible says here in Job 37. We have Elihu speaking, but I want you to notice what he says about God and the creation. Verse 14, hearken unto this, O Job, and stand still. And I want you to notice this word, consider. He says, and consider. The word consider means to think carefully about, to ponder upon. He says, and consider the wondrous works of God. He's telling Job here, you should think about, you should ponder about, you should take time to carefully process through uh, the wondrous works of God. Verse 15, does thou know when God disposed them and caused the light of his cloud to shine? Verse 16, does thou know the balancing of the clouds? And I want you to notice what he says at the end of verse 16. The wondrous works of him which is perfect in knowledge. In verse 14, he says, you should consider the wondrous works of God. And then in verse 16, he says, the wondrous works of him which is perfect. And I want you to notice those words in knowledge. He says, you should consider the wondrous works of God because they are perfect. The word perfect means complete. They are whole 
in knowledge. Now, there in Job, go into the book of Psalms, just the very next book over, Job, Psalms, and go to Psalm 104. Here, Elihu is telling Job, and I would agree with it, that not only uh, are God's works wondrous, but they are done in knowledge. They are done with knowledge. Psalm 104, notice verse 24. Notice what the Bible says in Psalm 104 and verse 24. Just one book over, Psalm 104, verse 24 says this, O Lord, how manifold, The word manifold means many or numerous. He says, how manifold are thy works? How many are thy works? How numerous are thy works? Notice these two words. In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. I want you to understand what the Bible is saying here. In Job 37, we saw that we ought to consider, we ought to think carefully of the wondrous works of God because they are done perfect in knowledge. Here we are told that the works of God are manifold and they are done in wisdom. He says, in wisdom hast thou made them, the earth is full of thy riches. Go to Psalm 136. You're there in Psalm 104. Just flip a few pages over. Psalm 136 and look at verse 5. Psalm 136 and verse 5. The Bible says this, Psalm 136 and verse 5, to him that, notice, by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endureth forever. The Bible says that God made the heavens by wisdom. He says, by wisdom made the heavens. Now, I'd like you to keep your place there in Psalms because we're going to spend most of our time this morning in the book of Psalms. So go ahead and put a ribbon or a bookmark or your bulletin or something there in the Psalms so that you can leave it and come back to it quickly. But I'd like you to go with me to the book of Romans in the New Testament. We've been in the Old Testament this whole time. If you start in the New Testament and if you start in the book of Matthew, you're going to go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Now, while you turn there, let me read to you from Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 12. You, you go to Romans chapter 1, but I'll read for you from Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 12. The Bible says this, He hath made the earth by His power. He hath established the world by His wisdom, and hath stretched out the heavens by His discretion. So in Jeremiah, we read that God made the earth by His power, and He established the world by His wisdom, and He says that He stretched out the heavens by his discretion. Now, you should be in Romans chapter 1, and here's what I want you to understand, and I'm just kind of laying the foundation for the sermon, and here's what I want you to gather. God tells us, in fact, the Word of God tells us that we should be able to consider the wondrous works of God, and that we, when we think about them, when we ponder them, when we consider them, that it should become obvious to us that they were made in wisdom and in knowledge, that God used wisdom and knowledge to create. Yes, He used His power, but it was done in wisdom. It was done in knowledge. Here's what that means. It was something logical and reasonable that could be observed. Are you there in Romans 1? Look at verse chapter 19, Romans chapter 1. I want you to notice what the book of Romans says in regards to creation. Romans chapter 1 and verse 19 says this, Because that which may be known of God. Some people say, oh, I don't don't know God, and I've never seen God, and how can I know that God is real? Well, notice what uh, the the, uh, apostle Paul wrote. He says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest. The word manifest means that it's seen, it's observable in them. He says, you want to know God? You can observe God in yourself because you are a creation of God. You were created by God. Not that you are God, but that you can observe the works, the wondrous works of God in creation. He says, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. You say, well, how has God showed us that he 
exist. Verse 20, for the invisible things of him, notice, from the creation of the world are clearly seen. God says, look, you can see, you can see an invisible God. You say, well, how, how, is that, how does that go? Well, if you remember in our sermon on the resurrection, we talked about the fact that we have a faith, which is the evidence of things not seen, but it is not a blind faith because the resurrection was documented by eyewitnesses. Here God is saying something similar. He's saying, I am an invisible God, but I can be clearly seen. Notice, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. You say, how is that? Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Here's my uh, thesis for you. Here's my hypothesis. The Bible teaches that you and I should be able to consider, to ponder, to think about, to investigate the creation, and that that creation would reveal for us that the world and everything in it was made by a wise and knowledgeable creator. The Bible teaches that you and I should be able to look at what God made and that when we look at that, we would see that it was created, that it was designed, that it was implemented by someone who is wise and intelligent and, yes, powerful. Today, Christians, and I don't necessarily like this term, but today, Christians like to call it intelligent design. You should be able to look at creation and realize that someone put this world into Existence, someone created this world to be inhabited by its creation. Now, keep your place in Romans. We're going to spend most of our time in Psalms, so go back to Psalms, but we're going to come back to Romans at the end of the sermon. So if you're wondering, when are we going to be done? You'll know we're done when we're going back to Romans, all right? So keep your place there in Romans. Go back to Psalm 19. And let me say this. And I said it already, but I want to say it again. My goal this morning is not to give you evidence for God. Because faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. My goal this morning is to give you this thesis, this hypothesis, that you and I should be able to look at creation and it should show us that it is reasonable to believe that creation points towards a wise and knowledgeable creator. Now, here's what you need to understand. The opposite of that you're, you say, well, if I don't want to believe that, then what, what can I believe? Well, you could believe in evolution. You could believe in the Big Bang. You could believe that nothing created everything. You could believe that this world was put into motion by an explosion. You can believe that life came from random acts of natural selection, mutations, and just survival of the fittest, and these things kind of battled it out over millions of years, and here we are today. But here's what I'm asking you to consider. I'm asking you to look at, and what we're going to do this morning is just look at creation and ask yourself, does creation point towards chaos, towards randomness, towards uh, just survival of the most fit and the most uh, uh, gruesome and the most mean and the strongest? Does creation point towards that, or does creation point towards a wise and knowledgeable creator who created the heavens and the earth, and created you and I in it. Now, are you there in Psalm 19? Look at verse 1. I want you to notice that God tells us what to look at. So let's, let's see what God says. Psalm 19, look at verse 1. If, you keep, if you're there in Psalm, Psalm 19, verse 1, notice what the Bible says. To the chief musician, a Psalm of David. Notice what, notice what the psalmist wrote. 
The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. In Psalm 19 and verse 1, we are told that the heavens, referring to uh, the sky and space, that we should be able to look at heaven and it would declare to us the glory, the honor, the majesty of God. And that, and that, and the Bible says, and the firmament, again, referring to the sky, the heaven, it showeth his handiwork. Go to Psalm 136. Psalm 136. Look at verse 5. Psalm 136 and verse 5 says this. Psalm 136 and verse 5 says this, To him that by wisdom made the heavens, and his mercy endureth forever. We read that verse already. Notice verse 6, Psalm 136, verse 6. To him that stretched out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endureth forever. Verse 7. To him that made great lights, for his mercy endureth forever. Look at verse 8. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endureth forever. The moon and stars to roll by night for His mercy endureth forever. So in Psalm 19, we're told that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show this handiwork. In Psalm 136, we're told what God put in the heavens and the firmament, which is the uh, great lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And here's all I'm telling you, is that according to the Bible, according to the Bible, you and I should be able to look and consider the heavens, and it should point us towards a wise and knowledgeable creator. Now, I want to read a few articles for you this morning, if that's okay. And I'm going to read for you uh, this article. It's from the abc.net news website. And I want you to understand that this is not an article written by uh, Christians. This is a secular article. It is an article written by, obviously, an atheist or something weird like that. Because here's the title of the article, okay? It's titled this, What is the Goldilocks Zone and Why Does It Matter in Search of E.T.? Okay, now I don't believe in ET. All right, I believe in God, uh, and I, you know, but this whoever wrote this verse or this article thinks that there is extra uh, terrestrial life out there, and they think that they can find it. And I'm reading this to you just because I want you to understand what even scientists, atheists, people who we would be told are well educated, believe about the ecosystem that you and I live in on this planet. Here's what, here's what they wrote. The Goldilocks zone refers to the habitable zone around a star where the temperature is just right, not too hot and not too cold for liquid water to exist on a planet. Liquid water is essential for life as we know it. Where we find liquid water on Earth, we also find life. Here's a quote. The only life we know about is our carbon-based life, and water plays a crucial part in our existence And by the way, up to this point, I agree with everything they've said. Here's where they go weird, all right? And so it's only natural that we direct our attention to planets and locations capable of having liquid water. This is a quote from Professor John Webb of the University of New South Wales, and that's what he said. And here's what I want you to understand. Even these weird scientific evolution atheists who think that they can find life on different planets, they say, if we're going to find life on different planets, which I think is ridiculous, but they say we're going to find life on different planets. We're going to have to find a planet that meets the same criteria as planet Earth, because here's what it seems like to anyone who's object- uh, objectively observing the ecosystem of planet Earth. It seems like planet Earth was fine-tuned for life. It seems like planet Earth was designed specifically to have life on it. Here's another article. 
It says this. The, this is called, this is from a Christian website. It's called Evidence for Creation. The earth is the only planet circling our sun on which life as we know it could and does exist. Like no other planet, ours is covered with green vegetation, enormous blue-green oceans containing over a million islands, hundreds of thousands of streams and rivers, huge land masses called continents, mountains, ice caps, and deserts that produce a spectacular variety of color and texture. Some of life is found in virtually every ecological niche on the Earth's surface. Even in the extremely cold Antarctica, hardy microscopic beings thrive in ponds. Tiny wingless insects live in a patch of moss and lichen. The plants grow from flower, uh, grow and flower yearly. From the apex of the atmosphere to the bottom of the oceans, from the coldest part of the poles to the warmest parts of the equator, life thrives here. To this day, no evidence of life has been found on any other planet. The Earth is immense in size, about 8,000 miles in diameter, with a mass calculated at roughly 6.6 times 1,021 tons. The Earth is on average 93 million miles from the sun. If the Earth traveled much faster in its 584 million mile long journey around the sun, its orbit would become larger and it would move farther away from the sun. If it moved too far from the narrow habitable zone, that's what we just read about the Goldilocks zone, all life would cease to exist on Earth. If it traveled slightly slower in its orbit, the Earth would move closer to the sun. And if it moved too close, all life would likewise perish. The Earth's 365 days, 6 hour, 49 minute, and 9.54 second trip around the sun the side row year, is consistent to over a thousandth of a second. If the yearly average temperature on Earth's surface changed by only a few degrees or so, much of the life on it would eventually roast or freeze. This change would upset the water-to-ice ratio and other critical balances with disastrous results. If the Earth rotated slower on its axis, all life would die in time either by freezing at night because of lack of heat from the sun or by burning during the day from too much heat. Our normal earth processes are assuredly unique among our solar system and according to what we know in the entire universe. And here's all I'm saying. Does it seem, does uh, 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 does observing the complexity of the ecosystem on the earth that you and I live in, does that point towards randomness, chaos, evolution? Or does that point towards a wise and knowledgeable creator who knew what he was doing when he put this universe and he put this earth when he created it to be inhabited by you and I? And here's all I'm telling you. Here's all I'm telling you. Because I'm not trying to convince you of God. It's not like I got a Polaroid. Here's a picture I took of God. Here's the proof. And you would just, you know, say it's photoshopped. And I would agree. The point is this. The point is this. That our faith is a reasonable faith. Our faith. Because here's what the world tries to do. They try to make it sound like they're smart and we're dumb. Evolution is smart. You know, people who believe in evolution are smart. And then the rest of us are just a bunch of imbeciles. And we have a crutch and it's the Bible. And here's all I'm telling you. You can believe the creation story and have that stand up to logic because it is reasonable to believe that the complexity of the ecosystem on this planet points towards a wise and knowledgeable creator who put this world into existence. Let me give you another example. You're there in uh, Psalms. Go, Go back to Job. Just one book back. Job chapter 12. Job chapter 12. Look at verse 7. 
Job chapter 12. Remember, the hypothesis today is this, that we, might, that we would be able to observe creation and it would point towards a wise and knowledgeable creator. We looked at one example, the complexity of the ecosystem on planet Earth. And all I'm saying is this, you could look at how complex and how it seems to be fine-tuned for life, and it points towards, it's reasonable to assume, and it's reasonable to believe that it points towards a wise and knowledgeable creator who put it into existence. Let me give you another example. Job 12, verse 7. Notice what the Bible says. But ask now the beast. Now the word beast there is referring to animals. But ask now the beast, and they shall teach thee. And the fowls, talking about the birds, of the air, and they shall tell thee. So here's what... Job is telling us. He's saying, you can ask the animals, you can ask the birds, and they're going to teach you, and they're going to tell you, look at verse 8, or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee. The fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee, who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this. The word wrought means to work or to have worked this. And here's what he's saying. He's saying you should be able to look at the beast and ask the beast, you, the animals. You should be able to look at the fowls of the air. You should be able to look at the earth and the fishes and the sea. And they would testify to you. They would testify that it is the hand of the Lord that created them. That it is the hand of the Lord that formed them. That it is the hand of the Lord that brought them into existence. So here's Point number one, for those of you taking notes, is, is it reasonable to believe that the complexity of the ecosystem on planet Earth points towards a wise and knowledgeable creation, question mark, and I believe the answer is yes. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, that's just one example, and maybe we just lucked out, it just happened to be that life evolved on this planet because this is the one that happened to be fine-tuned for life. Okay, well, here's the next question. Does the complexity, or is it reasonable to believe that the complexity of animal life, because this is what the Bible says, ask the beasts, ask the fowls, ask the fishes. They'll tell you that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this. Is it reasonable to believe that the complexity of animal life points towards a wise and knowledgeable creator? Now, I'd like to read to you another quote, and this quote comes from Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin, I'm sure most of you know, is the man who invented the theory of evolution. He wrote a book. Today, it is known as The Origin of Species. When he wrote the book in the 1800s, this is not the name that was given to the book. That's just part of the name. Back in the 1800s, you may or may not be aware of this, but back in the 1800s, 1700s, 1800s, when people wrote books, they did not give them. Today, what we do is we give them a short title that is kind of catchy and easy to understand, and then we usually give them a subtitle, which is a little longer, and it explains what the book is about. In the, eight, in the 1800s, in the 1700s, when people wrote books, what they would do is they would give a book a very long title that explained what the book was about. Now, today, the title of Charles Darwin's book has been shortened to The Origin of Species, but I'd like to read to you the full title of this book. This is what Charles Darwin wrote, and this is what he named his book when he wrote and he proposed the theory of evolution. And by the way, it's a theory because it's not been proven. Here's the full title. On the origin of species, by the means of natural selection, or the, persever- uh, the preservation excuse me, of favored races in the struggle for life. 
want you to notice that part of the title of his book was The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggles for Life. And I just want to throw this out there. I don't want to turn this into the sermon about this, but I just want you to know this. If you are an evolutionist today, if you say, I reject the account of creation and I believe in evolution, then you have to wrestle with the fact that the theory of evolution is a racist theory. It was invented by a racist. It was meant to teach that there are favored races that struggled, that persevered, that uh, uh, through natural selection and through survival of the fittest have uh, exalted themselves above other races. And look, I, I'm just telling you, I, I'm just telling you this. I'm okay with you looking at what I believe and, 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 and seeing if it'll stand up to reason and logic. All I'm asking you, if you're an evolutionist, is to look at what you believe and see if it stands up to reason and logic because this is the goal of Charles Darwin. His goal was to show that there were certain races, specifically uh, black people, and I don't even believe in races, okay? There's one race, the human race. The Bible says we were created of one of the same blood. We are all descendants of Adam. But his goal was to teach that black people were inferior to white people, that Jews were inferior to the Aryan race. This is where Hitler loved the theory of evolution because it helped his uh, worldview of a favored race that is above others. And here's all I'm telling you. Here's all I'm telling you. I wouldn't be an evolutionist. I'm, I'm too brown to be an evolutionist. You know, if I were black, you wouldn't catch me being an evolutionist. You wouldn't catch me quoting a book, The Origin of Series, when it's really on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. And here's all I'm telling you, and here's all I'm saying, and I'm not saying that every evolutionist is a, is a racist. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is this. If you're an evolutionist, you need to struggle that. You need to wrestle that idea down. Do I believe, and is it reasonable to believe in a theory that teaches that some humans are less human than others? Not, I'm not even preaching about that. That's just for free. Here's what I want you to notice, though. In The Origin of Species, there is a quote by Charles Darwin. I'd like to read it to you. Here's what he said. This is what Charles Darwin wrote in his book. He says, If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Because here's the theory of evolution, that life did not happen in a moment, like the Bible teaches, when God spoke into existence the heavens and the earth, but that life, it has gone, that, that life as we know it has gotten to this point through millions of years. It was formed by numerous successive slight modifications. Human beings were not uh, human beings like we know them today. They started, you know, and, and, and you can go as far back as you want. You started as a single-celled organism, and that single-celled organism uh, uh, was in the oceans, and it crawled out of the ocean, and it somehow formed legs, and it formed a body, and it happened to find someone else that it could reproduce with that happened to have formed the same legs and body and things of that nature at the same time. And, you know, that's talk about winning the lottery, you know. <laughs> And, 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 and then it formed and it formed and it gave birth and it gave birth and eventually, you know, this animal became this animal and through very successive mutations and, and through all these uh, uh, change in DNA, here we are today. This is what he taught. And this is what he said. This is, this is what he said. He said, if you could show, because look, Charles Darwin wrote his book in the 1800s. We have learned a lot 
about animal life and human beings and, and the universe since then. And he said, look, if you could show that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, then he said, my theory would break down. Here's what he's saying. If you could show that there is any form of life that could not have formed over millions of years and over many successive changes, but that it needed to be formed and created complete, then you would disprove my theory. This is what Charles Darwin said. Now, I'd like to read to you, and I don't normally read a lot, uh, this many articles. Over the last couple of weeks, as we've been going through this reasoning, I've been doing a little more than, than, of that than I normally do. But let me read to you from an article uh, there called Irreducible Complexity. This is a theory uh, put out by a man uh, named Michael Behe, and I'll just go ahead and read this to you. Michael Behe, biochemical researcher and professor at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, claims to have shown exactly what Darwin claimed would destroy the theory of evolution through a concept he calls irreducible complexity. In simple terms, this idea applied applies to any system of interacting parts in which the removal of any one part destroys the function of the entire system. An irreducibly complex system when requires, uh, uh, then requires each and every component to be in place before it will function. Note, uh, note what this implies. An irreducibly complex system cannot come about in a gradual manner. All the components must be in place before it functions at all. A step-by-step approach to constructing such a system will result in a useless system until all the components have been added. The system requires all the components to be added at the same time in the right configuration before it works at all. So Michael Behe, who's a biochemical engineer researcher, says that there is a such thing as irreducible complexity. He says there comes a point in, 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 in animal life, in human life, when you cannot reduce it to less than it is. It requires every part. It could not have happened gradually. It either was existed as it is today, or it never, or it doesn't exist, because it, it's, it's, it's irreducibly complex. You cannot reduce it lower. You need all the parts to function. You need them all there at the same time, in the, same, in the right configuration, in order for it to work. You say, give me an example. Well, I'll give you a few examples. And uh, this, this is one of the most famous examples that he gives. He wrote a book called, uh, um, what's the name of his book? It's called Darwin's Black Box. And um, he goes through different arguments uh, uh, in, in, that, in that book. Go, go to Psalm 104. Let me give you uh, some examples. Psalm 104, and look at verse 24. Psalm 104 and verse 24 says this. And, and the reason I want to show you the verses is because I want to show you that everything that God tells us you can look at and it'll prove my, that, I'm, that I exist, we can look at and see that it points towards a knowledgeable and a wise creator. Psalm 104, verse 24. O Lord, we already read this verse, but, but I want you to get the context. O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. Verse 25. So is the great and wide sea, wherein things creeping innumerable both small and great beasts, and he goes on. I want you to notice that phrase, creeping innumerable. In our Bible, when you see the word creeping, it's the, it's the same word that you and I would use today as an insect. Uh, something that's creeping in our King James Bible is just referring to an insect. Here's what God says. You should be able to look at insects 
and see that they were created by a wise and knowledgeable creator. So here's an example that Michael uh, Behe gives. He talks about the bombardier uh, beetle. I remember when I first researched this, um, I was, I'd, ne- I'd never heard of this uh, beetle, and I was looking into it, and my kids who are homeschooled were telling me all about it. They're like, oh, yeah, we studied this in our science, blah, blah. They're telling me all about this bombardier beetle. So if you uh, haven't heard about it, don't feel bad uh, I don't, unless, you know, I don't think most people have, but unless you've looked at, at some of this research. But here's, here's, let me tell you a little bit about the, bond, the bombardier beetle. It is a half-inch bug, and it mixes chemicals that explode as a defense mechanism. So it's a bug that actually fires out an explosion, and this is its defense mechanism. This is how it survives, right? Because look, evolution teaches survival of the fittest. So it had to have had this defense mechanism in order to survive. If it did not have this defense mechanism, it could not have survived according to Charles Darwin. So the bombardier beetle is a half-inch bug that mixes chemicals that explode as a defense mechanism. It stores these two, well, it stores a a total of four chemicals, but let me give you the chemicals that explode. Hydrogen peroxide and hydroquinone, and when these are mixed then they react with an explosion, and it keeps these in two different storages. It keeps these chemicals from reacting or exploding inside its body. Because, look, if you mix these chemicals in a lab, it would blow up. And if you mix these chemicals inside of this bug, it would blow up. And here's the problem with bugs that blow up at birth is that they don't evolve, all right? And they don't have babies, okay? So it has these chemicals that when they react together, uh, they blow up. So it keeps these chemicals from reacting, exploding inside of the body by mixing in a third chemical, which is an inhibitor. The inhibitor uh, neutralizes or or keeps these chemicals from reacting. However, when the bug is in trouble, when it needs to defend itself, and it needs the chemicals to react, to blow up, This inhibitor is a problem. So it has a fourth chemical, which is an anti-inhibitor. And the anti-inhibitor neutralizes the inhibitor and allows for a reaction. It allows for it to blow up, to blow. And it directs that explosion in the direction of its enemy. And this is how it defends itself. So here we have a bug that has a defense mechanism that has a total of four chemicals. Two chemicals that when they react together, they blow up an inhibitor that keeps the two chemicals from blowing up inside its body, and an anti-inhibitor that it squirts into the chambers inside of its body in order to neutralize the inhibitor so that these two chemicals could react and blow up. The only way that the bombardier beetle could exist today, and it does exist, is if it was created with this defense mechanism and it had it all in place at the time of creation. Because you do not evolve this type of complex defense system. You say, oh, well, don't you think it could have evolved? Well, here's the problem. The, the, The idea of trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, they try to tell you, well, you know, the eye wasn't the way it is today. It was trial and error, trial and error, trial and error until natural selection got it right. Here's the problem. This, this bug better get it right the first time. Because, again, bugs that blow up don't reproduce. Bugs that blow up don't mate. Bugs that blow up don't evolve. And here's all I'm telling you, is that God says you should be able to look at the creeping things and see that there are some things that are irreducibly complex. 
Meaning when they came into existence, they came with every part in order, in the right configuration. And this, you say, well, that doesn't prove God. Here's what it does. It points towards the fact that that bug was created by someone who is wise and knowledgeable and powerful. Because whoever designed that bug knew what they were doing. And it wasn't random. And it wasn't chaos. And it wasn't evolution. Are you there in Psalm 104? Look at verse 25 again. So is this great and wide sea. God says, look at the ocean. Wherein are things creeping and innumerable, both small and great beasts? God says, you can look at the beast. He said, look at the great beast in the ocean, and they, and look at the complexity of animal life, and it'll point towards a wise and knowledgeable creator. Now, when I think of a great beast in the sea, I think of a whale. We actually talked about whales on uh, Wednesday night in our Ezekiel series. And did you know that evolutionists teach that whales have a vestigial pelvis that used to be legs? The National Center of Science Education has literature. Okay, this is a a secular, respected organization, they have literature that states that the whale may have evolved from the cow, all right? So the, the whale, if you look at the skeletal structure, it has these two little uh, bones uh, dangling at, towards the end of the tail or towards the midsection of the tail. And evolutionists say, see those two bones? Those used to be legs. This used to be a cow, okay? There was a cow that really liked the water, and it spent so much time in water, and it eventually lost its legs, and it became a, a whale, and blah, blah. This is what evolution teaches. Now, here's the problem with that, all right? Here's the problem with that. And this is from the discovery.org uh, website. It talks about steps to turn a cow into a whale. Because, look, when you teach kids, when you teach little kids in first grade and second grade, and you show them a picture of a cow, and the cow kind of hunches down, and it kind of spreads out its legs... And, it, and, you know, every picture progressively looks more like a whale, and it's like, see, it became a whale. Well, a little kid's going to look at that and say, wow, that's amazing. You know, you look at a little monkey, and it starts walking upright, and it starts losing hair, and it starts, you know, and, and then it looks. Yeah, when you show pictures like that, yeah, I mean, sure, that kind of looks like a monkey could turn into a human, or a cow could turn into a whale, or a dinosaur could turn into a chicken. Here's the problem with that. When you actually look at what it would take to turn a cow into a whale, it becomes very complicated. Many changes would have been necessary to convert a land mammal into a whale, including, here's just an example, emergence of a blowhole with musculature and nerve control. So its nose and its breathing, the way it breathes as a cow, had to have transformed, and we realize that whales... Uh, breathe oxygen, but it had to have turned into a blowhole with muscle and nerve control to be able to breathe underwater or to, to hold its breath long enough to live underwater. How about this? Modification of the eye for permanent underwater vision. You can't take uh, an eye on earth and put it underwater and expect it to work for for long periods or for, you know, its eye would have had to been modified in order to have permanent underwater vision. How about this? Ability to drink seawater. Whales can drink seawater. Animals that live in the ocean can drink salt water. Animals that live on earth do not. The cow would have had to develop the ability to drink seawater. How about this? 
Four limbs transformed into flippers. How about this? Modification of skeletal structure. How about this? The ability to nurse young, uh, uh, to, to nurse its young underwater. How about this? Original, or, or excuse me, origin of tail flux uh, and musculature. How about this? Blubber for temperature insulation in the ocean. And here's all I'm telling you. Are we really expected to believe that a, water, that a cow that liked to swim a lot? Over millions of years and children after children and all of these things are all happening at the same time. See, here's the thing. I don't believe in evolution, but if I did, I would have to believe that somebody designed it. That somebody on purpose turned that cow into a whale. Because when you consider all of the things that would go into making a cow into a whale or a monkey into a human, it's just not probable. It's not reasonable. You know what's more reasonable to believe? It is reasonable to believe that the complexity of animal life points towards a wise and knowledgeable creator who created a whale that had blubber for temperature insulation, that had an ability to nurse its young underwater, that had the right skeletal structure, the right forelimbs, the right flippers that had the ability to drink water, that had eyes that could see permanently underwater, that had a blowhole that would allow it to live underwater. Here's all I'm telling you, and here's all I'm saying, is that when you look at the complexity of animal life, it point, and it is reasonable to believe that it points towards a wise and knowledgeable creator who designed it on purpose and put it into Existence. Go to Psalm 139. Let me give you a third example. and we'll, we'll finish up here soon. Psalm 139. Now, you know what we done when we go to Romans, okay? Psalm 139. We've just been looking at some reasons, right? That's what we've been doing this whole last three weeks. Is it reasonable to believe in the resurrection? And we gave you some evidence, some corroborating evidence to show you that it is reasonable to believe that there was a man by the name of Jesus Christ, that he was more than just a man. He was the God-man. He died, was buried, and three days later, he resurrected from the grave. We talked about, is it reasonable to believe that God gave us a book? It was, not, it was penned down by man, but its source was not man. It was not written by man. It could not have been written by man. It was written by God. We're talking about, is it reasonable to believe that there is a God that created the heaven and the earth and everything in it. The complexity of the ecosystem on earth points towards a wise and knowledgeable creator. That's reasonable. The complexity of animal life points towards a wise and a knowledgeable creator. That is reasonable. Let me give you one third example, and we'll finish up. Psalm 139, verse 13. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, this is what the psalmist says, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He says, the psalmist here is saying, Our human bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee. When I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lower parts of the earth, thine eyes did see my substance. Yet being unperfect and in thy book, all my members were written, which, is a, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Here's what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, you could look at my body. You could look at human bodies and realize that the complexity of the human being points towards a wise and knowledgeable creator. And let me just say this, and this is the example I want to give you. The complexity of the human cell 
Let me go back to that article, Irreducible Complexity. It says, how does irreducible complexity apply to biology? Behe notes that early this century, before biologists really understood the cell, they had a very simplistic model of its inner workings without the electron microscopes and other advanced techniques that now allow scientists to peer into the inner workings of the cell. It was assumed that the cell was a fairly simple blob of protoplasm. The living cell was a black box, something that could not be observed to perform various functions while its inner workings were unknown and mysterious. Therefore, it was easy and justifiable to assume that the cell was a simple collection of molecules, but not anymore. uh, Technological advances have provided detailed information about the inner workings of the cell. Now, let me read to you from an article uh, called uh, The Bacterial Flagellum. The flagellum, it says, this is an amazing little rotary engine that is in use trillions upon trillions of times every day that provides irrefutable evidence that there is a creator. Like an outboard motor, this engine has a propeller, stator, motor, universal joint, drive shaft, and bushings, and, it, uh, and is perhaps one of the most energy-efficient machines in the world. The propeller operates at between 6,000 and 100,000 revolutions per minute, and can completely reverse its direction within a quarter turn of its body. You might guess that it is a machine used in heavy industry, but without an electron microscope, you cannot even see this incredible piece of machinery called a flagellum. It is the motor that propels bacteria. Bacteria are essential to life. They aid in digestion and fight other bad bacteria. So because of technological advances since the time of Darwin, we now know that in the human cell, there are these flagellum. They are the motors that uh, run the bacteria. Let me continue. A flagellum helps a bacterium move through liquids. It is composed of 30 to 40 working parts and makes up a system Michael Behe, professor of biochemistry at Lehigh University, calls irreducibly complex, meaning that no part of the machine is of any value without the other parts. This is a big problem for evolutionists because any one part of an organism like this would not and could not have evolved over time. All must be present in order to function, and without even one small part, the flagellum would be useless. Evolution teaches that bacteria were one of the first life forms to evolve, but most bacteria could not survive without this incredible outboard motor on the flagellum. When Darwin proposed the theory of evolution, he did not have access to an electron microscope and hence believed a single cell was the smallest and simplest component of living creatures. We now know that the living cells contain a host of specialized machinery to keep the cell healthy, repaired, and reproducing. The documentary, The Hidden Life of a Cell, by the BBC, states that there are at least a billion little machines in each of the 120 trillion cells that make up a human being. While the uh, single-celled bacterium is not as complex as other living things, it is not just a blob as Darwin thought. The motor part of the bacterium, the flagellum, is extremely complex. It is so amazing that the New Scientist magazine calls it a prime example of a complex molecular system, an intricate nanomachine beyond the craft of any human engineer. 
That was Dan Jones in uh, a quote from Dan Jones in a, an article called Uncovering the Evolution of the Bacterial Flagellum. And yet it is so tiny that 8 million of them would easily fit on the cut end of a piece of human hair. But as they say in the vernacular, you ain't heard nothing yet. One of the most incredible aspects of this machinery is that it builds and repairs itself. It takes about 20 minutes for a new machine to be constructed, one part at a time, from the inside out, and each construction has several checks and balances and aborts production if any part of it is not formed perfectly, thus saving energy and resources. And here's all I'm trying to tell you is when you read that and when you hear that, and that is all scientifically correct, you have to ask yourself this question. Does that point towards chaos and randomness? Or does that point towards a wise and knowledgeable creator who knew what he was doing when he created the heavens and the earth and all that in them is. And here's all I'm telling you. Here's all I'm telling you. Our faith is reasonable. It is reasonable to believe that the heavens and the earth were created by a wise and knowledgeable God. Go to Romans chapter 1. We're going to finish up right here. Romans chapter 1, look at verse 22. Romans chapter 1, verse 22. Romans 1, 22 says this, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. The Bible says this, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And today you have a bunch of scientists and researchers and public school teachers who are professing themselves to be wise, but the Bible says that they are fools. Because the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Look at verse 25. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And isn't that the world we live in? Where our world is worshipping and serving the creature more than the creator. And here's here's the point. Here's the only point I'm trying to make. You say, you didn't prove God to me. I wasn't trying to. Because the only way to come to God is through faith. All I was trying to show you is that our faith will stand up to reason. Our faith will stand up to logic. Our faith is a reasonable faith. It is reasonable to believe that the creation points towards and indicates the fact that there is a wise and knowledgeable creator. You say, well, if it's so reasonable, then why are so many people rejecting it? And here's why. Because to acknowledge that we are a creation means to, that you must acknowledge that there is a creator. And if there is a creator who created you, then you have to acknowledge the fact that you are created with a plan and with a purpose and that you are accountable to that God. So we have chosen, and when I say we, I mean our culture has chosen to profess themselves to be wise when they're really fools. And they've changed the truth of God into a lie and they worship and serve the creature more than the creator because they do not want, they do not want to acknowledge a creator God. And we're done with this series and we're going to move on to something else next week and we're going to start a brand new series after that. But all I want you to understand is this. We have gone through the last three weeks and looked at some of the three major parts of our faith that are attacked 
by the world today. And here's all I'm telling you. If it is reasonable to believe, if it is reasonable to believe that there is a God that created the heavens and the earth, if you can look at the complexity of the ecosystem we live in, if you can look at the complexity of the animal life that surrounds us, if you can look at the complexity of your own human body and realize that it points towards not chaos, not randomness, not evolution, but a wise and knowledgeable creator. If it is reasonable to believe that there is a God that created us, then it is reasonable to believe, like we learned last week, that that God has revealed himself to us through his word. And if we can look at his word and we can find specific prophecies fulfilled that could not have been orchestrated by man, If we can look at his word, as we did last week, and find scientific facts revealed in ancient documents that man had not discovered, then it is reasonable to believe that that God that created us revealed himself in his word. And if there is a God that prophesied that there was a coming Messiah that would die for our sins, then it is reasonable to believe that God sent his son to die for your sins. And it is reasonable to believe that he resurrected from the grave. To prove that he was God. And here's all I'm telling you. When you put all these alone, single, standing evidences that are reasonable, when you put them all together, you know what you realize? That it's not reasonable. It's real. There is a God. This is his word. He sent his son. And I can't prove that to you, All I can tell you is that you must come to him by faith, and that is a reasonable faith. And if it's true, look, if it's true, if it's true, then you and I don't get to pick at the Bible. It's all God's word. I don't care what the culture says about the Bible. It is what God gave us, and it is what we believe. If it's true. And you say, well, I don't know if I believe it. Okay, just realize, just realize that your opposite, your other choice is death, randomness, mutations. This is how we got here. There is no plan. There is no purpose. There is no soul. There is no love. There is no emotion. You are a bunch of cells and chemicals that come together for the purpose of drinking water and eating food so that you can survive. And here's what I know. Deep down inside, you know that that's not true. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us a faith that is not seen, but it's not unreasonable. It is reasonable to believe. It is reasonable to believe in a God that created us. It is reasonable to believe in a Bible that he revealed himself to us. And it is reasonable to believe in the Son of God that would sacrifice himself for our sins. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to walk away from the series strengthened in our faith, not on the defensive, but on the offensive, that we believe in a reasonable. And thank you, Lord, for inviting us to reason together with you. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody here this morning who's not saved, anybody here who says, I, don't, I just don't know if I believe, that, Lord, you, your Holy Spirit would use what has been taught over the last several weeks to convince them, to convince 
the gainsayer, to convince them that our faith is not only reasonable, 